once articulated that education is the soul of a society as it is passed down from one generation to the next. Welcome to The Hybrid Model, an education podcast. In episode two, Jessica and I ponder the state of our politics and how we teach a deeply divided nation. We also touch upon the impending mental health crisis in public education, both from a teaching perspective, but also from a student perspective. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and don't forget to subscribe so that you can hear future episodes. Now, on with the show. a tough question because I I just don't have an answer to it and I you know I think you and I are the same in that we appreciate civil discourse and we want to discuss things with folks on the other side but what I'm finding is I think there are people in my life who support Trump but don't want to tell me so I think that there's like this, I'm going to avoid Jessica at all costs because I can't explain myself or I am going to explain myself and she's not going to accept it. <laughs> she's going to come back with the other side of the argument and beat me. Because um, I just, I'm having a really hard time. Like when I think back to past presidents, you know, I, I see both sides to Obama. I see both sides to George W. Bush. I see both sides to Clinton. It's so hard for me to see both yeah. sides here. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know if there is a good answer here, but I know. So I know there are, there, there, there have to be some things that we are going to need to. Uh, <laughs> all right, so. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the solution is either. But I, I'm totally in agreement with you that clearly there are uh, a percentage of of our student body population, right? Particularly where we teach and where we live, uh, that at least tacitly uh, subscribe to some of those beliefs, right? So how do we manage? Right those students while also making sure that we have a safe space in our classroom is I think going to be the defining issue of the next four years, right? Absolutely, I think that's huge. And I started that process this week with my in-person students. What, what, what'd you do? So we did um, a, basically like an agree or disagree activity with statements about okay. voting. And it was very neutral, but So the statements were really easy, things like election day should be a national holiday, or um, it should be required by law that all eligible voters vote, um, things like that. But then we also had a couple controversial things like people who have felony convictions should be allowed to vote was a statement. Uh, Then we also had one that was um, people who are here and undocumented should be allowed to vote. So I... I hope that what I created in my classes this week was sort of that space that says you get to disagree with that person across the room, 
but you have to support why it is you disagree with them and you have to continue to be respectful. And I will tell you, my students blew it out of the water. I was so impressed with them. And, you know, we talked last episode about how awkward and kind of cold it's been here at school. And this was kind of one of those first moments that I thought, I can still be the teacher I want to be in this situation. I can, like you mentioned, I can create these safe spaces. I can, or more appropriately, I think I can create this brave space, this space where they get to be courageous and voice their opinions and know that they can do that in this classroom. And I think... I think what we need to get back to, right, or at least something that I'm, I need to get back to, uh, two things. Number one, I think part of the, the, the political divide, all right, for both sides, but certainly I come from a, a very specific perspective, right, is that we have created environments, either intentionally or artificially, that it's very easy for us to otherize whomever else is in the room, right? And right. I, I was talking to students about the evolution of gay marriage, right, as a controversial subject because, like, overwhelmingly the generation of students that are in high school now, like, it's not even a political question, right? It, it's moved from right. uh, no way would we allow that to how is this even a question in 20 years, which to me <laughs> – is fascinating right but i think one of the things that helped create such swift movement was that so many of our friends and family uh, members and colleagues uh came out right and it's exposure to all of those stories that i help uh, that i think helps provide perspective right so i like yes i think there is a, a strong segment of our population that I would say is white working class or whatever, right? Uh, but right. we live in a suburb. And I think the more that we can expose white working class kids, right, to more diverse perspectives, but also create that environment where we can have a discussion, I think we'll be better off, both culturally here at school, but I think you know, as educators and, and, you know, theoretically as a country, I don't know. I like, feel free to disagree with that. Cause that I was kind of just the idea that I've been mulling around my head. Like how, 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 what can I do? You know? Right. I think it's really interesting that you brought up the gay marriage analogy because actually one of our colleagues who um, is actually at district office now is gay. And he talks about how he feels the gay civil rights movement moved so much more quickly than the black civil rights movement because there were so many people willing to tell their stories, tell how it affected them. And then also there's the side of most black people have black family members and black friends and black associates, as opposed to a lot of people in the queer community, their reach extends beyond Ah, just other queer people. And so um, again, I think that, I think that it's an, a, a good analogy to use to talk about how we can sort of move in the right direction and what that takes. So that's the first thing. Um, Secondly, yeah, I'm all about um, letting students look through a window, right? Like so many of our white working class students are used to mirrors, like they're seeing things in their classrooms that reflect them and their life as opposed to looking out beyond who they are. And so 
Um, I think that we are in a good position and have a platform to show them what's beyond being a a white working class citizen. Well, and I think it it hints at like the the power of narratives, right? Like that's that's something I teach in speech all the time is that each of us has a unique story and we are better performers and uh, we give better speeches, we write better speeches, you know, whatever it may be, uh, when we can connect personally to that story. And the same goes for not necessarily changing minds, but but finding commonality, right? Like I, I think there is a lot of there are a, a lot of those white working class people, right? That when you talk about big concepts like racial inequality or you know um, criminal justice reform or whatever it may be, right? Those are big concepts that they have no definitive, like concrete place to anchor, right? And just like yeah. when, when you would talk to the religious right before, like you would be like gay marriage and they'd be like, oh, I don't know, you know, and they would be very apprehensive until they met like, you know, a loving gay family. Right. And, and that anchor is what matters. And uh, so, like, I, I think it's powerful in those small classrooms, in those small environments to say, like, like here, here is what I'm talking about. Uh, when I talk about police reform or whatever, right? And, and sharing a unique moment, right? A unique story and, and giving an actual image or, or voice to that broader concept. Does that make any kind of sense? Yes, absolutely. And I, I'm really happy that you said that because you're kind of just sort of reaffirming a couple of things that I've done recently. Um, and I like that you use the term anchor because I hope that maybe I'm an anchor for some of these students. I just told them my very personal stance on voting, which is I take a lot of pride in it as a woman, but especially as a black woman. And I use my grandmother as an example. And I told them, you know, my grandma's 86 years old. She's my last living grandparent. And she was older than I am now before she was, it was legal for her to vote. Um, And so I, I, put that into perspective for my students. And I think for a lot of them, it's the first time they're hearing that narrative, this idea. And so I I tell them, you know, all of my great grandparents were slaves. We're not that far removed from it. I can show you my family tree right now and show you the plantations where my great grandparents were slaves. Um, I can tell you that my grandparents, the ones who have passed away, a lot of them didn't get to vote because there were the laws about if your grandfather was a slave, then you're not eligible. I mean, I think that I think those stories are really powerful. And I'm not saying that I'm reaching every single one of my students when I tell them these things. But I think there are some who are listening and taking that home and realizing that there's more than just what they see from their parents. Yeah, no, I think that. uh... I, I, I see, uh, per, uh, particularly for my children, right, my actual biological children, who one is about to be in high school, like the, the development of morality and political positions and that kind of stuff is uh, not static, right? It's dynamic, and I, yeah. I want him to be challenged, right? I, I, I want him to come, hopefully, to the same value system that I have, right? But I understand that mm-hmm. that is a journey that he will ultimately have to take on his own, 
right? And I can provide some guidance and I can hopefully, you know, um, have open discussions about all of those things. But I, I see that role also as a classroom teacher, right? Like my job is not to impart my particular values on any of my students, but likewise, my job is not to like uh, try to figure out what everybody's teaching at home and make sure that I echo that, right? We, we are tasked yeah. with creating these critical thinking, you know, smart, intuitive kids. And sometimes that's going to be on the same political path that their parents take, and sometimes it won't. And that is, uh, I don't know, one of those things that maybe I struggle with, one of those things that, you know, I'm concerned about because, like, uh, you know, there is a conservative influence uh, in our school district and, and in our county, and I'm not saying it shouldn't be there, but sometimes it's opposed to what we're doing. You know, absolutely. I, I, I'm not sure if you want to talk about this yet, but I am kind of curious if you feel any sort of. I don't think pressure is the right word, but do you ever feel like there's going to be a time where you get in trouble, or somebody on the school board is going to call you out, or one of our administrators? I sometimes I worry about that, and not too much. I mean, I don't ever really let it stop me, but I sometimes that thought is always kind of in the back of my head like I know we live in a conservative area so what does that mean for my teaching in the classroom Um, yeah I think it's always a concern Uh, there are some there are some artificial artificial boundaries that exist in my classroom because it's speech and debate that don't exist in other ones right so I always feel um, like no kid signs up for debate so that we can just echo you know one particular side of of the argument right like they always have to learn the other which i think is inherently beneficial but also gives me room to teach both sides right and sometimes i think that room doesn't necessarily exist um in other classrooms you know because maybe they maybe they don't teach argument the same way or maybe the cultural expectation is for them to not teach argument the same way you know probably more so the second right well i i want to i think we have done a fair job of addressing like how to get through to uh, white students uh, who may feel alienated, particularly after this election, especially if Joe Biden wins. But I think both you and I are very concerned about the closeness of this election and what it means for our students of color and what happens with, with those students and how do we make sure uh, we provide a safe environment for them too? That is another one of those things that is so, so difficult. But I, I have a couple a couple plans uh, in my head right now. Let's hear it. Let's how hear I it. I want to approach the coming days. Um, so first of all, um, just a, a bit of a bit of backstory here. I well, I guess we talked about this last episode. I like to use texts in my class to be inclusive, right? So I I'm I don't read a whole lot of dead white dudes. I'm definitely choosing POC authors and queer authors. And so that's one of the things I'm really going to hit hard on in the next couple of weeks. And um I hope they don't regret their decision, but the admin in charge and my other teachers who teach my course have pretty much given me free reign to plan the next several weeks. So um, 
which I think is great. And I actually, we have a meeting today and I'm going to tell them, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to include these anti-oppressive texts in our lessons coming up and to make sure that our students who are marginalized don't have to question whether or not their English teacher respects and values their humanity. And we have the opportunity to do that with our readings. And I realize it's different for us in an English class as opposed to maybe a math class or a science class, but we we have that benefit. So that's one of the things that I really want to focus on is know that I value who you are as a human being, regardless of what's happening politically. So um, what, uh, what, and I, what are some I, of the texts that you're going to read? So uh, we have, I actually have a book that was written from the perspective of some undocumented, undocumented youth. Um, and they had to publish it anonymously because they were actually set to go to print in 2017. And after the 2016 election, they were really worried about what was going to happen with these undocumented teens. So we're going to read some of their stories um, and, again, just sort of humanize them. Um, One of the things I really talk to my students about is how reading humanizes other people. Um, And that's why we focus on studying literature so much. So we're, we're going to read some of their stories. We're going to read about pronouns and how all language is just made up and that we don't necessarily need to apply gender to pronouns. And um, again, we're going to read a person's story about how they want to use they, them pronouns and how they came to that conclusion. So that's one of the things. Um, We're also going to read about um, a Muslim woman who is in a relationship with a Catholic white man. She's Middle Eastern. Uh, her family is sort of on set on this path to disown her if she continues this relationship. So we're going to talk about that. So just I trying to bring in a yeah. wide variety of marginalized people to for my students to read, for us to talk about. Um, we'll probably try to do another of the agree disagree activities that we did in class because it's sort of a COVID safe sure. activity that I can do. Um, a long time ago, well, um, The Hate You Give is a really popular novel with our students, and the yeah. movie came out a couple years ago, but when the book was originally published before it became super popular, I used to use the first few chapters from that book and have students talk about police reform, have them decide whether or not they thought the officer should be charged with a crime. Um, so, And I haven't used it in a few years because it kind of just became overwhelmingly popular, but I might bring that back sure. out. See how that goes over with this group yeah. of students. Seems like a, a timely and <laughs> a good time to, to do that. Yeah. So, um, again, just exposing exposing students to things that they maybe aren't seeing in our environment. The second thing is, I, if you don't know, I sponsor a yep. Black Student Union here. And so we have a meeting tomorrow. And really a lot of that is just about me creating a safe space for them to talk about what's going on. And tomorrow, I'm just going to lead with the question, what do you want to see from your teachers in the coming days, in the coming weeks, regardless of how the election turns out? I'm hoping we'll know by tomorrow afternoon, but if we don't. um, So, so yeah, just listening to what they have to tell me because, gosh, they're insightful young people. Yeah, they really are. Like, uh, I think I have struggled this year. Um, making those same kind of connections that I have in years past. But we had our first kind of like in-person debate tournament. It wasn't really in-person. We were all in our home building competing virtually at somebody else's. But it is amazing how much energy like 
kids that are just excited to be here can give you, you know? Uh, so were you in charge of uh, Black Student Union in 2016? Yes. How was that? Uh, how was that meeting after that election? And uh, do, you, do you see any differences between the two, maybe? So it was uh, tearful, I think is probably the best way to mm-hmm. explain it. Um, I, <laughs> I think that a lot of people were confused and scared, but also there was just a lot of unknown yeah. Like, what are we getting into? I remember I showed them uh, a clip from Dave Chappelle. He he was on Saturday Night Live that following weekend, and he gave a monologue about how he was, you know, going to hold out hope. You know, you know, you're, you're our president now, so prove us yeah. wrong. Show us that, you know, we didn't have anything to worry about and things are going to work out okay for us. Like, here's your opportunity to do that. I remember showing that clip in that Black Student Union meeting um, and I remember us leaving that meeting feeling hopeful, like, okay, you know, we, we were really concerned. This is not what we wanted, but, you know, hope, hopefully things are going to be okay. Hopefully this is the worst of the worst and, you know, the next four years yeah. will fly by. Well, it'll be fine. How <laughs> yeah. wrong we were. Yeah. Right. But now I have young, I have people in this. So a lot, I have a lot of seniors in my club this year, just folks who have been with me since they were freshmen. And boy, have they found their voices and they um, they're not afraid to speak up. They're not afraid to be vulnerable. They're not afraid to ask questions. So I, I just rely a lot on them to sort of shape how our meetings go. And that's that's what I'm going to do for them tomorrow. Just leave that space open yeah, for them. I, I think that's a, that's important. And what an evolution, you know, <laughs> like, man. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. I can tell you the the one thing that occurred to me, right? If I'm drawing lessons out of uh, this election, I'm 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 a bit of an election junkie to begin with, right? It was like way more fun when I was less concerned about um, not that not that I was never not concerned about winning and losing, but I felt like the the they both occupied a middle space that um, seems to have vanished you know right so so the stakes feel higher right so things are significantly less fun for me but i still will obsess in weeks and months before the election about like how it looks and you know down ballot races and that kind of stuff right so uh, one of the things that was glaringly apparent uh out of last night's election uh is that uh there are a bulk of latino uh voters in florida and even along the rio grande in in Texas uh, that are more conservative than than I think anybody realized and that lesson right not only that Latinos aren't a monolith but also that any of our students of color are not monoliths right like absolutely uh, like I, I a great example I had this uh, student he's 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 older now whatever African American student um, named Wisdom right and. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember was awesome. Wisdom. Uh, he was yeah. the son of, I, I, I'm pretty sure they were Nigerian immigrants, uh, but he was very, very conservative, you know, and he happened to be debate partners yeah. with somebody who was really not, you know, and, and I remember the discourse that we would have and how uh, that was, uh, he defied some of the assumptions I made about him. And I made those assumptions at my own peril, right? Because that 
throws up these artificial boundaries that we can have towards actually connecting with with our students you know so i'm going to try to do a better job of uh, of not viewing those particular folks you know whatever that class of folks may be women voters um you know african-american voters or students whatever uh as these monoliths that i can i can lay um that i can put an overlay on even if it's a overlay that that is is of a positive one does that make sense absolutely that makes sense yes and i think i i that's huge i think just to acknowledge that these specific demographics are not monolithic and i talk about this all the time all the time uh, i talk about it with my students just in my regular classes i talk about it with my bsu kids um, I can't remember if I mentioned before, but we, we have very few teachers of color here. But this year, I have another black female teacher joining me in our BSU meetings. And when I introduced her the first meeting, I said, hey, look, we've known each other for a long time. We're friends. We have a lot of respect for each other. We have similar backgrounds. But we don't agree on yeah. everything. Just because we're both black women doesn't mean that we're not you're not going to get two very different perspectives from us. And I use the term, I said, being black is not a monolith. And you guys should know this because we're all in this room together. And sure, we have things in common, but we also have a lot of differences. And I just back to your original point, if we're looking at this Latinx community and how they voted yesterday and in previous weeks, I, um, I think it was Soledad O'Brien who said, you know, a lot of our politicians are just pretending like, these folks are going to vote right. one way, and that's that's not yeah. the case. And, and I think we are all better people, and you know, theoretically, uh, more responsive politicians uh, when we can figure out how to engage in communities of color without understanding that they are a collection of stories and not um, like individual stories from a collective. If that makes any kind of sense, yeah. It does, absolutely. And I, I feel like that's sort of been the conversation that's been happening. Um, I read an article from Michael Harriet a few days ago talking about why so many black men vote for Trump. And they're sort of talking about how black men are always left out of the conversation. Yeah, interesting. And really, when politicians are targeting the black community, they're reaching out mm -hmm. to women. Um, and the men kind of get left behind. Yeah. And, so they they vote for like their their gender as opposed to their race and i know there there are all kinds of <laughs> generalizations and falsehoods in that statement but um yeah i mean it definitely makes sense and it's i think it's something that we all need to work on um i mean and i'll give you an example from my class i have a class that has three black students in it we met yesterday in my b group and when we were going through our voting activity of agree or disagree very few times did all three of them agree on an issue. And so I, I think that yeah. that's, you know, we're, we are just like microcosms of our entire country. So I think that that speaks volumes. Yeah. Well, and we, we can apply those same standards to our white kids, right? Because <clears throat> sure. I like, I, I have this superb kid in class right now. All right. Uh, he's in my ELA four class. Um, he's going into the military. He's like third or fourth generation military, but a, the kid is brilliant, right? And he's uh, typically will wear like a heavy metal shirt over like fatigues or something, you know, whatever, right? But yeah. there is a particular vision of the way that kid 
speaks, sounds, and theoretically votes that was already there, right? But after having talked to this kid, like in, engaged him and gotten to know exactly where he's at, like he's actually very liberal in, in like a capital kind of L kind of way, but also in a small L kind of way. Like, you know, like there was a <laughs> lot of agreement on those issues. And I think that's the space, right? That's the connection. Figuring out, right. uh, you know, how to engage all of our kids in this kind of uh, not aggressive fashion. I don't know, man. I don't know. Absolutely. I will tell you that's that's one of my failings, I think, right now is I end up unintentionally isolating or alienating some of my white kids because I think I, I come off a little strong when I start talking about these issues. And that's something that I just I need to work on. I don't want like I want to pull them in and not push sure. them away. So, yeah, that's that's definitely something. Another thing I need to work on in these coming. Yeah. Weeks. Well, and I have noticed I can come across that way. I have especially come across that way the last two or three years. And I think some of that stems directly from the anxiety that I have uh, about the world, right? Like, uh, if, if I could be calmer about what was going on extrinsic from my classroom, I could be calmer intrinsically in, in how... I, I frame everything, right? And that's incumbent upon us, right? That's one of the things that may certainly is an unfair ask for our teachers of color is like, look, man, when when you see so, so many existential threats or real threats in your outside life, how can, how, you know, how can we ask those same teachers to be so calm inside? And I, I think that's unfair. But it does lead me to one of my questions, uh, which is, I think over the next four months, uh, because of COVID, because COVID is rising really, really quickly here um, where we're at, because we're just outside of Kansas City, uh, and also with the election not being quick, right, and going to be this protracted thing, we often make light of, like, making sure we take care of ourselves and and self-care as a you know, like, as a, a teacher concept, but, like, what do you do? to make sure that you are taking care of yourself to try to like rebalance, uh, you know, what's going on with Jessica. Um, so very nerdy things. So brace yourself. <laughs> um, I am a huge reader. I mean, I'm an avid reader. I love, love, love reading. I'm incredibly passionate about the written word. So I, I, I just read a lot. I read and I read everything. I mean, I will read um, this mysterious vampire novel set in the future and also this like adult smutty romance and everything in between so that's that's really that feels good to me just reading Mm -hmm. um but i also really like writing and sometimes i channel that energy into writing about what's actually happening but what i realized was that wasn't good for my mental health like that was also creating anxiety for me so i i write a lot of fiction uh, so that's that's really what I do to kind of take care of myself. Um, I also just really enjoy being a mother and just spending time with my husband and our son. And that, like, that feels good. Like, I come home from work and I hang out with my kid. And that's that's really good for me, just focusing yeah. on motherhood. Yeah. 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 I, I think that makes complete sense. 
I think, uh, you know, I do a lot of uh, those same things. I find myself, like, uh, I get, you know, falling into uh, cycles of anxiety, right? And as I've grown sure. older, uh, I can try to short-circuit that, right? So it's, uh, I, I got to take a, a step away from Twitter, right? <laughs> or I got to, <laughs> you know, I would say I'll go out and jog, but, like, uh, clearly I'm not <laughs> yeah, going no. to do that. All <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, like I've, I watch uh, – there is this really interesting article that came out maybe a month or two that talked about why horror movie fans tended to deal better with, like, real-world anxieties, right? Oh, um, interesting. Some of that was that uh, it's – the world – things feel anxious when we can't identify a monster, right? Uh, or we feel powerless in fighting that monster or whatever, but – Horror movies give you this thing that you can focus on, right? That you can get away from, that you can fight, that, you know, they, that has these very specific archetypes that feel comfortable and feel inviting and understandable. So in so much of the world that doesn't feel understandable, I return back to that stuff, you know? Like, a, I, I, I like the simpler world of, of horror movies, you know? So That's fantastic. Yeah, uh, it is... Uh, I, you know, I like being scared. Now what the hell I'm going to do after <laughs> Halloween, I don't know, you know, but it is what it is, so. That's pretty cool. I like that. Uh, you know, one thing that I wish our school would do, um, so my wife teaches at another school here in Kansas City, but they have turned a corner of their library into um, a meditation, relaxation, uh, stress-free zone. So they have, like, a couple of massage chairs, and they have, like, uh, like this recording that is supposed to help you meditate, right? And so she's doing this thing with all of her kids, which I think is super rad, uh, which is in she's taking them because there's only like three or four chairs, right? So she's taking them, you know, three or four at a time and going through some basic meditation strategy, right? Uh, just this like, here's how to cope, here's how to breathe, you know, when you find your emotions running higher, whatever. Here are some techniques that you can do. And honestly speaking, empowering our students to do that, I think, is an incredibly, incredibly uh, good thing as, as we face kind of the world around us, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. I really, really love that. I will tell you, so kind of a side note here, I have a, I have a super small class one of the days of the week. We have three students in there. And they decided they wanted to have a writing share circle. So we do that now every week. And one of one of my students shares her poems about mental health. And we discussed last week about how sometimes adults will just write off students' mental health issues. You know, like, what do you yeah. have to be worried about? What do you have to be anxious or depressed yeah. about? You're only 16, da, da, da. Which, you know, is incredibly dismissive. And like you said, how empowering to take that and say, hey, I know... I can see that you're also struggling, that you also need help with some anxiety, maybe some depression. Let's talk about that. Like, that's huge. That's yeah. huge. Well, and again, right, it's about finding that connection, right? Like, I tell the kids, um, you know, I have my own battles with anxiety, you know? Like, the, these are these are things that it, it is okay to tell people, but also to, you know, to say that you're not perfect, right? And you need help. And there are times where... where the people that I, uh, you know, count as my support base have, you know, they can tell that, right? And they, they can give me advice when I'm not listening or whatever. And 
Yeah, like uh, that is certainly one of the subjects that I wanted to talk about tonight uh, or today, whatever. Um, I have found that my students that are already okay, right? Uh, my students that are um, in mentally okay positions, you know, upper middle class anyways, like those kids are a little beat up, right? Like I describe them as like, having some bruises on them but they're dusting themselves off and figuring it out but my students that already had a couple of things working against them right either mental health mental health issues or you know picadillos things that maybe i would have noticed during a normal school year but didn't dominate their ability to learn those are the kids that i'm really worried about that seem at least from my perspective to really be struggling you know interesting okay uh so i i didn't know if you had seen the same thing if like uh that this kind of half quarantine half hybrid whatever this situation (laughs) is like is it making those kind of externalities worse for you or things pretty much kind of the same when it comes to your students so I'm definitely noticing some of those issues, and I, I don't want to give too many details about this specific situation because I'll end up, it'll be pretty easy to figure out who I'm talking about. But sure. I, have a, I have a student who um, is very ambitious as far as I need to have a 4.0 or better in high school because this is what I want to do, and this is where I'm going to go, and this is who my father is. And, um, and that student is literally failing every single class right now. Um, we had to, you know, kind of have a little bit of an intervention last week. And the student's father basically has just said, this is this is a mental health issue and I don't know what to do. I don't yeah. know how to help this. I mean, she's always been, you know, really bright and motivated. And I've never had to hover over her shoulder. And all of a sudden she's, I mean, so yeah, it's kind of a terrifying situation as a parent. Yeah, because right. what do you do? Um, and I also, so I, I'm in a, what I think is a cool situation that last year I had a lot of freshmen and I have all sophomores this year. So I have a lot of students who I had in the past and it's easy for me to check in on them, say, Hey, sad. I haven't seen you in six months. How are you? What's going on? And just leaving that open for them. But the students who I, who I've just met, who I've seen, you know, like a quarter inch of their face, or I've never seen it all because they're online you know, it's, it's not the same, right? They don't know who I am. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard to know. It's so hard for me to get any sort of grasp on my students this year. And that's, I, I mean, we talked about last episode, I rely so heavily on my relationships with my students. So it's, it's been a challenge for sure. Yeah. Well, and that's a, so at this last uh, debate tournament, right, we give them their own room and then they compete in their own room, but they take their mask off, right? And I realized as I was peeking in to make sure that they were doing okay, right, through the glass, right, uh, I hadn't seen what their faces look like, you know? And I was yeah. like, oh, my God, that's what you, you know? like It's always a surprise. Yeah, it's so weird, you know? Like, it is such a, like a weird, uncanny thing about this year that it just adds one more thing to kind of the, the bizarro level of it. But, yeah, like, I... I the kids I know really well, uh, even kids that I would see every other day, like red, white, or whatever. Uh, at at this point, if they came and they told me that they were struggling, my default is always to 
to be like, okay, how can we figure this out, right? My default is always to be student-centered and to believe that student. But I've also been teaching 17 years. If I had a nickel for every time uh, a girl said, uh, I hate my mother, right? I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> and I understand that some of that it is just a product of, of adolescent hormones and that kind of stuff. I totally get that. But my ability to figure that out now, my investigatory tools <laughs> feel so uh, not suited for this environment right now, you know? Yes. Yeah. Which, which just makes me feel like really inept, right? I, like, I, and I hate that. I'm like, I don't know. Is this a thing? <laughs> right. So I, I don't know about you, but I become really reliant on social workers and counselors that maybe have a longer history with the family or a longer history with that student to be like, inform me, you know, yes, is this a thing that absolutely. we need to take care of? Yeah. I don't yeah. know, but it, it definitely seems worse this year, right? Like, Oh, for sure. Yes. And I also will add, I, I rely a lot on my students' facial expressions. <laughs> I think yeah. we mentioned this last episode. And I also realize that I'm relying on them to see my facial expressions. Right. <laughs> and yeah. that is... Whew. Yeah, trying to <laughs> figure out ways around that has been difficult. But yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I'm, I'm reaching out to counselors and social workers, and I've tried to make very delicate phone calls home. Yeah. Like, hey, hey yeah. what can I do to, to help through this situation? And I, yeah, I just, uh, there's, there's a lot. I had a student who came out to me this week, but I'm pretty sure nobody else knows. I'm like, man, how do I handle this when she's like, sitting in the corner crying and I can't tell it. It's yeah. my goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, like, you know, everybody's got like a, a, a teaching persona, right? I guess over 17 years, I'm kind of the, the, uh, the, the foul mooded cranky, <laughs> you know, teacher, which, which students that really know me know, like that's all a facade. Right. But that's how I think I come across. <laughs> But I have to like I, I have to deflate that from time to time. So I usually make fun of myself and I always smile really big, you know. So there are some things that, that are intrinsic to how I look and how I sound that help counterbalance that. Well, none of that is there. So I've you know, because they can't see my, my mouth. So I found like laughing uh, really loud and aggressively <laughs> to try to compensate, which just makes me sound like a nut job joker, you know? So I'm like, what? Like, I, I don't know, man. So yeah, <laughs> I'm still hilarious. struggling to try to not be a Batman villain, I guess, as the year <laughs> progresses. I don't know. What a weird year, Jess. What a <laughs> right. weird year. Yes, uh, yeah. Well, uh, I think that pretty well does it on my list. Any any new education stuff that's come out uh, in your neck of the woods? You know, I, I got to say, I, I listened to several different education podcasts, and there's one I listened to pretty frequently, and there were some teachers from Austin Independent School District on, this, was, this would have been last week, and they were talking just how much their administration has failed them. They don't have any sort of safety plans in place. They're figuring out, they're taking away sick days from teachers who are working from home. They don't know which students are going to be. I mean, it's it's a disaster to listen to it. I mean, my my mouth was agape for half this episode. I couldn't believe it. So I had a moment, and I really, I have not taken our administrators for granted this year. They've worked so hard to mm -hmm. put us in a situation where we feel safe. And so I, I haven't 
come down from that at all. But listening to that episode, I just just made me even more grateful that we work in a place where the people, the higher ups, I think, are really trying to look out for us as best as they can. And I'm I'm really, really appreciative of that. Yeah, I I think our administrative team here does a bang up job, given the set of circumstances that we have. And like... uh, I, I see how hard they work. And I also know that there is an inordinate amount of pressure on them from the community, from sometimes the school board, sometimes people from central office. So like, uh, you know, like I'm sure any administration, in any building, it has its um, defenders and its, uh, you know, its supporters. But like, I think they are doing, they are doing a good job. And Absolutely. I appreciate what they have done. Hopefully, they you know things will continue in that trajectory. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, um, where can uh, our listening audience find more of what Jessica Greider is doing? You can find me on Twitter at Mrs. MRS underscore G underscore Ryder. Tweet a lot about education and politics and books. <laughs> and you can find me on Instagram at Mrs. G Ryder. Love it. Uh, you need to put up some of your original fiction, you know? Yeah, actually, I my my little group of three students who have listened to mm-hmm. me read some of it, they're like, are you going to get this published? Well, <laughs> thanks for the confidence boost. So hey, maybe. man. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, would, I would love to read some of it. So. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely, uh, something I'm looking to in the near future. Cool. Very cool. Well, you can find uh, more of my stuff. Uh, I tweet at Ty Unsell, T-Y-U-N-S-E-L-L, mostly about uh, politics, sometimes horror, sometimes education, sometimes the politics of horror and education. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and then um, Signal Horizon is uh, the horror magazine that I run. So if you uh, like to talk about scary movies, then that's the place to go. Otherwise, I will be hanging out in room 325, uh, teaching some speech nerds and, uh, you know, (laughs) trying to survive like everybody else. So, Right on. All right. Well, until next time, see you around. Be safe.